Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. Hey, I hope you've had a good week uh, and your weekend has been great. We continue our series, The Upside Down Kingdom, on the, the teachings of Jesus from the, the sermon that he preaches on the mount. And Pastor Emma did a wonderful job starting this uh, series last week, um, went through the, four, uh, the first four Beatitudes. And we remember what Beatitudes means, right? What does it mean? Who took notes? What was that? Here we go. Be supremely blessed. Do you know one of the more uh, unknown ways of translating uh, beatitude is utmost bliss? That's weird, hey? Ever thought about that, Colin? No. Ever found yourself in a moment of bliss? No. Well, that's sad. <laughs> you got to get out more. <laughs> wow. We'll pray for you later. Utmost bliss. I sort of like that. Just that, that Jesus is teaching on how we can live a life that is supremely blessed and that we can live with utmost bliss. Like that concept of, of Jesus to the world and his teachings were like, yeah, they're good teachings, but you've got to be like this sad person that just, you know, in every sense of the word, a celibate. Matthew Giannakis looked up then. He's like, what do I? <laughs> it's too late. She's pregnant. Come on, not long now. He teaches, and, and we use this term upside down kingdom because, you know, like Pastor Emma started last week, he takes that social ladder of structures, systems, expectations, you know, man-made regulations, and he begins to turn it upside down. And he begins to shift it, and he begins to make it less about the doing and more about the being. There's a, a, a moment in time that we read about in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 5 to 7. This is where Paul and Silas arrive at Thessalonica. And it says this, it says, The Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. I love that. Ever read something like that and go, when was the last time you formed a mob? <laughs> like, how fun that would be. Just like, hey, I don't like this. And then you go find the rabble, which is usually the people a few cents short of a dollar, and then you form this mob. And, and then you go and you do something that you shouldn't do. And it says this, they set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Oh, man, I want to be known in the cities that we go to as a church as the people that have turned the world upside down. I think the church has, to a degree, lost its way, especially in the West, in trying to be an upside down difference. We are, and I've said this before, we're like fake welders. We're so trying to be so relevant to the world that we're, we're normal side up. But we've got to own the upside down nature of our God. If Jesus preached an upside down social structure that is against the normal cultures of the time and still are today, they might look slightly different or they might be projected in ways that seem so much more palatable in the modern era. 
if he's going against the grain, why aren't we? And I don't mean in a confrontational way, like I don't mean get onto Facebook and just condemn every person, because Jesus didn't. I don't mean get on there and share every thought you have. You know, be wise, be regulated. Not every thought you have is truth, and not every truth you have is objective. If anything, we know for a fact that the way we perceive information is very subjective, too subjective to build something upon. That's why we build it upon the rock. I love that Paul and Silas rock up and their world changes. They're turning things upside down. This world is ready chaos, but I want to be, I want to be like godly chaos. I really want to be godly chaos. I mean, when I look at this, I realize that, and I've said this before, but it doesn't say that, that the Gentiles were jealous. Interesting, hey? Paul being a Jew is finding the confrontation with his own people, not with the Gentile. Which leads me to believe that the chances are, as churches here in the modern era, maybe when we're called to turn things upside down, starting with the Beatitudes, it first starts at home. Maybe the confrontations we're going to have when we begin to live a life that is counterculture will first find friction in our own tribe. Maybe if we could get it right in our house, we could see the hope resonate in the other house. Because it's in the Jewish quarter of the city that there is issue. Why are they jealous? Furthermore, isn't it interesting that they say that, hey, this is against Caesar? It's against Caesar. Why? Because if they were to go to Scripture, if they were to turn to the Torah, if they were to look at the Old Testament writings of the prophets of old, Paul would win. So they don't plead to the Word of God for the outcome they desire. They plead to Caesar. They plead to the world. Oh man, the infighting I've seen in churches because we begin to allow the world's standard to become the mediator of our differences, not God's standard. And I know we're sitting at home going like, I haven't had beef against anyone. We'll find out and we'll see. You know, when we look at his teachings here and Christ does this right across his ministry, we see that he's, he's putting greater weight on the attitude that we have rather than our action. Now, there's a reason for this, not because he doesn't, he doesn't want to see our actions become healthy. It's because he's not a, a, a reactive God. He's trying to allow us to be turned good and righteous from the inside out. Because if it was all about action then where is the supreme bliss in that? If it's all about what we could do in our own strength, then where is the glory to God? He's saying, I need to, I need to fix you from the inside out. It's not about what you're doing, it's about being. See, you don't do Christianity. You are a Christian. What's the difference? Well, if you do Christianity, when the storm comes, Jesus says, like a man who built his house on the sand, the wind will, will push and will buffet and the, the rain will fall and your house will collapse. The whitewash will come crumbling down. You can't do Christianity. 
He warns against it. Don't do something like that. Don't be lukewarm in it. He says, you are a Christian. It's your very being. It's who you are. It's, it's your DNA has been changed. You are a new creation. The old man, the old woman has passed away. Dead. That's what it means. Gone. Forgotten. Not like the cause. Not if you feel forgiven. It's your favorite song in there. It is. You're Scottish or Irish or something, aren't you? You don't know the cause? Oh, you'd love them. You would love them, Colin. You would dance to them, I know. Vigorously. Okay. If it was all about what we look like on the outside, then we would have the same problems the world has. This might come to a shock or as a shock to you, but for some reason, in most countries that I visit, I am assumed to be the indigenous population. Right? Or I'm an islander. You know, they don't, I'm just racially ambiguous. But there has been, I mean, more times than I can count where I've gone to different nations. Even the U.S., they just think I'm, they just think I'm Mexican. And, and they will speak to me in their language. Why? Because they're judging what they see from the exterior. I went to an In-N-Out uh, down in L.A. near the airport. And it was back years ago now, almost 10 years ago. Uh, and I was new to the U.S. I hadn't, hadn't been before. And so I was wearing a, like a, what would you call it? Like without sleeves. I forgot. Yeah, muscle tee. Yeah, muscle tee. Uh, and if you don't know, I have a big, like, Gaelic cross on my shoulder, like a tattoo. I know, judge me now, put it in the chat, that's fine. We talk about theological later. But anyway, he, yeah, it's, it's, I have a history, you know, and Jesus saved me. Um, <laughs> I'm wearing this muscle tee. We've just come from the pool. We go to In N Out Burger, and I, you know, at the best of times, I don't pay attention to things like lines, like when you line up. And so I'm not paying attention. I just walk straight up to the cashier. I order my food. She weirdly and very hesitantly takes my order, but like in a weird sense, I'm like, this is weird vibes. Takes my order. I walk back to my chair, and Emma said, hey, that was quick. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, there's a big line. And I look around, and everyone in the line's looking at me. And I realized, because back then I had my head real shaved, I know you're all loving this right now, but it was like, it was like a one, a one with a black muscle tee, denim, boots, and tattoos. Everyone in that in and out didn't want to tell me that I cut the line. They judged me by my exterior, my doing, not my being. If they had simply said, hey, there's a line, they would have realized I'm a bit of a marshmallow, and I would have been like, oh, that sucks, I'll join the end of the line. I was in Hong Kong, and I kid you not, they do not believe that I can't speak Mandarin or Cantonese. They just, they honestly, one person stopped me and said, look, it was the concierge at the hotel, because I'm like, this, this is getting ridiculous, can they just talk to me in, in English? They're like, we can speak English, but you look like you're from Western China. You just look like you're from the West, but not like the White West. Like the West of, anyway, you look like you're an, uh, what they call it, an eager, an uger. And I was like, oh, okay, judge me from the exterior. I was in Phoenix, downtown Phoenix, which you shouldn't be by yourself. It's a weird city like that. And I felt, I realized, it's in that moment I realized I'd done a bad thing. 
One, because it's, it felt like a rougher end of town, some parts of it. Two, once again, I'd just come from the pool. And, <laughs> and I realized that I, I look like I belong here, but I don't know the rules. Ever been in a place where you look like you should know, but you don't know? The amount of Christians I see who we, we know how to make it look on the outside, but if I took time to speak to them, I'd realize you can't speak Spanish. <laughs> Buenos dias. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> I also know uno momento, por favor, which means one minute, please, or one moment, and then I leave and never come back. Oh, back to Colin. Yeah. (laughs) So many Christians, and I look at this upside. We put on this facade, and we can talk a little bit, just like I did. But if someone who really knows Jesus, who really knows the Scriptures, who's really been turned upside down and transformed inside out, begins to talk to us in a fluent native tongue of the gospel, we fall awfully short. I think right now, so often we put this, this dynamic, this tension of the church versus the world, but I think God is trying to under, allow us to understand He's trying to refine the church through the church so that those differences that are okay to have differences are managed and maintained and celebrated within the church through an upside-down mindset. All our activities are the result of our new nature, being born again. So as we go through the Beatitudes, I love this because Jesus is speaking about rewards and he's speaking about interactions and transactions that can only happen in and through us after he goes to the cross. That's what makes this this whole sermon completely incredible is that it is a foreshadowing of the rewards that we will receive in him. Every one of these beatitudes is only attainable through Christ. He is both the giver and the gift. He is both the action and the reward. But he's so wise and he's so smart and he understands how we think that he deliberately challenges it in every fiber of our being. He wants to rub us the wrong way because he knows in that friction he begins to wear off the whitewash and expose the beautiful creation that he created. When he, before you were a twinkle in your parents' eyes, he's not concerned as much about how others see us as he is concerned about we see him and he sees me. Pastor Emma spoke on blessed are the poor in spirit, for, there is, is, sorry, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And today we're going to talk about the next two. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is an incredible, I love these two. One, because when you first read, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, it sort of sounds like if I give you a a loony, you're going to give me a loony back. Sounds like a really simple exchange. It sounds like if I just act, if I could look, if I could do mercy, then I will be shown mercy. It sounds like community service, doesn't it? Do you know what I'm talking about when I say community service? 
when you've done some sort of crime and they commute the, the jail time, but they say you've got to do like 80 hours of community service, which is usually something no one else wants to do. Right? And we can read this beatitude and go, blessed are the merciful, for they they shall receive mercy. So if I I can just act merciful, if I can just be good to someone else, then God will show me mercy. But this is not what Jesus is saying. Let's take a look at what God's mercy is. So if we are to look throughout Israel's history about what God is trying to demonstrate to them, he does this out of a place of a love covenant despite their unfaithfulness. That's mercy. To love despite the wrong. To respond despite the wrong. To save despite the unworthiness of the recipient. Mercy is not sympathy. Mercy is not pity. Mercy is an action. It's not a feeling. It's not a thought. You're not merciful because you thought something nice when someone did something wrong. See, the reason I say this is that if we had a look at the facades of Christianity, we think if we can respond mercifully in word, at some point, everyone will think we're merciful, right? We judge the person who says what they think and reward the person who says what they think they should say, but one is disingenuine and the other person is authentic. How is that godly? Jesus said lots of things that were offensive, that were out of its time. That, that, that offended people. He didn't seem to be upset. Why? Because the Bible tells us he is mercy. See, I know this comes really weird to people who interact with my personality or my, my just general personality. Um, we do like spiritual gifts tests and we do like different tests of like what you score high on. And we always joke because I score weirdly high on mercy. Like, Emma just thinks I cheat, right? Uh, but I score weirdly high on mercy because for some reason I have realized, and it's probably just because the Holy Spirit's so good at transforming us even though we're, we're not worthy of it, uh, I realized that my words aren't what produce my merciful nature. It's what I do with my action, my being. So my words don't often reflect what I'm going to do. You might have felt this before, Right? Or I say something, or I respond to you because you've done something silly, or you've put yourself in a situation, and my initial response is usually one that makes you feel like you're in trouble, or makes you feel like I'm not going to help, uh, you know. But behind the scenes, what I know is that I'm already at work with God at figuring out how we can get you out of the situation. Now, what would you prefer? Would you prefer somebody that you know is working for you, even though they give you a bit of grief? in the verbal, but in their action, they're working for you, not against you. They're trying to help you out of your misery. They're not leaving you in your misery with sweet words and tea and sympathy. What do you prefer? Because when you begin to ask God, hey, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy, and you ask God, how can I be merciful? He begins to ask you to do things in Christ that are unachievable to do in your own nature. God's most or inmost heart as revealed in Christ is entirely a heart of mercy. In Jesus, and I love this, the heart of God is opened and made manifest in Jesus. When God sends Jesus, he sends his entire heart. He is, Jesus is the mercy of God in person on earth. Think about that. For God so loved the world that he sent mercy. Mercy. 
Mercy is not a simple word. It is word in action. He sent mercy. Mercy took on flesh and bone. Mercy took on our sin, our punishment, and was nailed to a cross. It was mercy that God showed in the manifestation of his son on earth. And it's how we're merciful. Our hearts are completely, completely broken. I love how he sympathizes. God sympathizes with our distress. But he doesn't leave it there. He takes these actions to relieve it, to remove it. Jesus embodies the mercy of God. And, and you know, while not failing to judge our, our sinful and our deplorable behavior, he nevertheless took it on himself to look beyond it into our misery, into our suffering, and make a way to relieve us of that pain. So often we want to focus on who was right and who was wrong, who's guilty, who's to blame. To have a true heart of mercy, and we need to understand this, is a complete transplant of our first response. Do you look at something and say, well, you know what? I'm right and they were wrong. I'm right, they were wrong. Because the way God sees it is, I'm right, I'll fix their wrong. That's how he sees it. I'm right, and in my righteousness, I will step down and I will redeem them of their, of their rags, of their sin, of their shame, of their guilt. I will use my righteousness to save. I will use my righteousness to heal. I will use my righteousness to restore. Yet as humans, and so evidently in our behavior, we need the person who was wrong to first tell us we were right. And then in the glory of knowing that we are right, affirmed by someone who is broken and hurt, we will then in that great glory come and help and show mercy. Now, I know it doesn't play out so dramatically in your head, but when I watch it, that's what I see. I'm like, wow, that's nasty. That's a bad dynamic. Hey, if we put that in a movie, we'd all hate that person. Wouldn't we? Like, that's the villain. Our actions, I love the Beatitudes, they're so pensive, they're so like, (sighs) our actions reflect a deeper heart work that has been done. So, if I'm to actually be merciful in a way that is merciful, like is helpful, I first have to realize I can't do that in my own strength, which means I have to what? Take on God's heart of mercy, who is? Jesus. I need to, Jesus to allow him to be the mercy that I give to people. That's what we need to do. So blessed are the merciful. The Blessed are those who understand that our mercy is reliant on Jesus. That we can try in our own strength, but it'd be limited. But in him, we can respond each and every time, unlimited access to mercy. And our reward is mercy. 
It sounds silly, but I love the fact that the more I push into Jesus, the more I become like Jesus, the more I receive Jesus. That's the promise. The more I, 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 I act like a merciful God, the more I act like a loving God, the more I act like a redeeming God, a forgiving God, the more I receive a redeeming God, the more I receive a loving God. Not because he's limited, but I'm opening up the pathways in my own life in becoming more like him to receive more of him. That's what he's saying. Merciful people lead to greater mercy. More like Jesus, more of Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful narrative? Because it's unlimited. It's utmost bliss. Like, ever looked at something and gone, I can't have enough of this. Because then if I have more of Jesus, because I, I gave him more space, then I have more of him to give him more space, which means I have more of him. I wish I was really good at this. I'm not. But every time I sit down and I look through something like this and I begin to restudy this, I get excited because all of a sudden when Romans 5, 6 say, says, while we were helpless, he died for us. All of a sudden, it's not about me having to do something. It's about me giving it to the one who can do something. I might not be the maker and the worker of dreams, but I know who is. I might not be the one that can restore sight to the blind, but I know who can. I might be the one that has all these broken parts of me and, and blemishes, but I know who can make things that are broken to something beautiful, who can restore beauty to things that were once ashes. I know, and it's not me, it's the one who comes not based on who I am, but based on who he is. So when I read 1 Peter 2.24, it says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree in order that they might be destroyed. I know right now that my sins have been dealt with. I'm not a slave anymore. I've got a new master now. All of a sudden, the mercy of Christ that we read about in 1 John 2, verse 2, he says, and he is the expiation of our sins and not for only, so not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. There is no sin, no problem, nothing bigger than the mercy of God and that mercy's name is Jesus. It is sufficient to remove our afflictions. It's sufficient to remove all our sins. It's sufficient to get us beyond our misery. But this is what I love. As we bear witness to the mercy that we received in Jesus, in the act of witnessing, not in the word of witnessing, in the act of witnessing, he mediates mercy through us. We become the vessel of mercy, not our mercy, his mercy. Our actions, not our words alone, bear the greatest witness. So Jesus himself, the promise and the blessing, is who we get to be closer with when we begin to pursue the merciful nature of our God. See, I love this. The merciful do not stand against the needy. They belong to them. Isn't that an amazing thought? That because we've accepted Jesus and we're becoming more like him, because we're saying, your will, God, your will, Jesus, not my will, all of a sudden... We don't stand against the needy. And when I mean stand against them, I'm not talking about, hey, let's go to war against the needy. I mean, we don't get to be the regulator of the mercy that God has asked us to show. He says you are to show unlimited mercy, which means we now belong to the needy. My life is no longer my own. This is no sacrifice, but this is something great. It's utmost bliss. One thing you really need to know right now is that I spoke about this earlier. 
Jesus is so concerned with our attitude, our being, not our doing. Our, our attitude, not just our actions. And, and as you read all the Beatitudes, you realize he's saying, I need to fix your attitude. I need to fix your attitude. The Bible tells us that the abundance of our heart, our mouth speaks. And what we speak, think about this, determines our attitude. And then our attitude, in turn, determines our action. And so when the psalmist writes, I hide your word in the depths of my heart so I wouldn't sin against you. All of a sudden you realize that you can't begin to receive or begin to outwork the Beatitudes and all the blessing that comes with it unless you're found in the word of God. Unless you're allowing the abundance of your heart to be the word so that your attitude begins to be the attitude of Christ and not the attitude of Ben or whatever your name is. Just type it in the chat right now. Oh, do I love that our chat? You can sign in as someone else. I'm going to sign in as Colin Weeks. Don't you dare. Daniel Finmore. Oh, this is unlimited. Sign in as Karis. Karis, like, stop. Words, attitude, action. There's an attitude and there's an action to mercy that we must understand. It's very simple and it's very elementary, but if we could get it done really well, we'd be so successful at showing mercy to people. And this is what I want you to understand. Forgiveness is the attitude of mercy. Help is the action of mercy. Does that make sense? Forgiveness is the attitude. Help is the action. So if you don't have forgiveness in your heart... Your extension of hell will not be out of a place of compassion or mercy, but out of obligation. It's fake. So when we see the parable of the prodigal son, we see God's mercy embodied in the father responding not out of obligation or not that the son had met all his obligations, but out of forgiveness and out of help. See, because forgiveness makes way for acts of mercy. See, it's that whole understanding that, hey, I can forgive because I was first forgiven. I can love because I've been loved and I've been shown love and I love through that love now. And his name is Jesus. I love that forgiveness costs us nothing. Ever thought that? but gives us everything. Yet, for some reason, we treat forgiveness as if it's going to cost us something. My mom taught me at a young age to forgive and forgive quickly. Move on. Not in an ungodly sense, just move on. But forgive. Unforgiveness is like carrying a burden you were never called to carry. Doing a job you were never designed to do. help. So, so you've got a repentant heart yourself. You understand the grace of God that deals with sin and mercy that deals with the misery. You, you have a heart of forgiveness. I mean, you don't have to show forgiveness if you operate in forgiveness. Does that make sense? I don't have to choose forgiveness when I live in forgiveness. 
For me, not to forgive would be a painful thing. But then I can show help. This is an action. We see this in the Good Samaritan when everyone else, all the religious people, all the right image, all the Christians, if we were to put it in the modern context, who wear the right things and say the right things and you know, know all the different lingo and all the different cultural things to make it look like you are together. All those people walk past, but the Samaritan, the reject, the unwanted person who had a real heart to help is the one that helps. Hey, can I tell you right now, what you wear is not helpful to the kingdom of God in the way you think it is. The mask you put on is not helpful to the kingdom of God. The affirmation you search in the frivolous things of your life by people who don't really know who you are is not what's going to sustain you. It's not going to make you helpful to the kingdom. I love that in our church, you can wear, you know, you got to dress respectfully. Don't get me wrong. Like, don't be a, a hobo about it. But, but at the same time, your fashion choice, your expression in your fashion is none of my business. That's up to you. What worship songs you like compared to other worship songs, it's none of my business. What you do in your time with God and how you dress and how you look, that's between you and God. What I'm concerned with is are you being transformed from the inside out? Are you a true representation of our God? See, when we see Jesus on the cross, we see the greatest act of mercy and then we see the words come after the act has begun and He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Isn't it interesting that He doesn't say that before the cross? He says it on the cross in the act of mercy. His words are following His actions. His forgiveness is followed with help. Can I tell you right now, God forgave us before Jesus hopped on the cross. Shouldn't even say hopped on. So disrespectful. Apologize. Before Jesus laid down on the cross. Blessed are those pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. That's not an understatement. That's not one to just skip over. They shall see God. I love that Christ here is not commending the intellectual. He's changing the vision of God from something being expressed through intellect and through how much you knew as a Pharisee or as a rabbi into those who had a heart pure for God. It's not about emotion, it's not about your intellect. It's not about the will of the believer, but it's about the heart, which includes all three. It's not a surface thing, but it's a core. It's the core function of a believer that Jesus is speaking to here. He's saying, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. What is the image of God? Don't you read that stuff and go like, yeah, well, we're all going to pass away and we're all going to see God. We're all going to be restored into our full glory. But it's not what he's saying. He's saying the pure of heart is to realize our need for a new heart. It's to realize that we need Christ's heart. In his time, in his teaching, Christ's heart was always surrendered to the will of God, not restricted to moral or sexual purity. He's talking about a whole new heart. It is the one who loves God with his whole heart, with an undivided loyalty, one who has 
an inward nature that corresponds with his or her outward profession of Christ. Isn't that interesting? So we know Christ is the only one truly with a pure heart, being pure in heart. See, we can and we can try to be pure of heart, though it's only through His grace that we can participate in such an action. I love that. It's only through His grace that we can participate in such an action. But all of a sudden, the, the question begs, then what is the image of God? What are we looking into here? And at the end of the day, what we're talking about here, what Christ is saying is blessed is the one that has an undivided heart for Christ, an undivided, loyal heart for Christ. How many of us today have one foot in one camp and one foot in the other? Because He's saying to do that is to blur, is to skew, is to obscure the image of God. If you want a pure image of God, you can't be in one camp or sorry, one foot in each camp. You've got to be solely in the camp. of. You've got to be sold out for Jesus. And if you're sold out for Jesus, then you will see Him like you've never seen Him before. But if you're doing this on the side and you're trying this and you're touching that and you're hoping this will help and you're turning this for, you know, turning to this for hope, all of a sudden you're, you're you are, we are obscuring what the image of God is in our life, not Him. He said, I've made every way possible. I've knocked out every door. I've removed every mountain. I've transversed every river, every valley. All you have to do is come into my camp and see me. But for some reason, we constantly want to find out what's in every other camp, even though in the past it's hurt us, even though the past has let us down. It's left us with scars. It's left us with trauma. It's left us rejected, left us hopeless, lonely and isolated. We still want to find out what it's like and somehow come back to God. We're like Israel. We're like reading the book of Hosea over and over and over again. He's come for a bride. And I'm going to say this really carefully. He's come for a bride, not a prostitute. Sold out. Set apart. Waiting, pure. Not because of us, but because of Him. And this is what I love, is that no matter how broken, and trust me, I've made a lot of mistakes. I am the furthest thing from perfect, but it's not about me. And you could have made heaps of mistakes as well, or you could have got it perfect, but you still suck. It's not about you. It doesn't matter what your profession is. It doesn't matter what your gifts and talents are. Without the light of Christ, we are but all fallen short of the glory of God. And this is what he's saying. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is not impossible. It's very attainable. Psalms 86, 11, it says, Unite my heart to fear your name. Come on. Do we fear God enough? Do we fear Him enough? Do we have enough reverence for Him or do we treat Him like that person that will always be there? The friend that will always give you a lift home. You know that friend, right? And then all of a sudden you stop asking, you just hop in the car. Do we treat God with enough reverence? Because we sing as we do, but do we live as we do? Because blessed are those pure in heart, for they, they shall see God. I know you know this is true because when you're on hard times, 
when things are rough, when you've got challenges, when you've got giants to face and mountains to climb, it's funny how we leave every other camp <laughs> and we step back solely into the camp with Jesus and we see God. We see the way. Isn't He faithful? Isn't He gracious? Isn't He merciful that He doesn't kick us out of the camp, but He's like a dad that runs after us and says, I'm so happy that you're back. Put a calf on the oak, like let's have a party. Let's dress you in the best robes. He's so faithful. Even though we go out and we squander our inheritance, we lose sight of Him, but then we come back because He's a faithful God. Can I tell you right now, at some point, you gotta stay in the camp. There's life in the camp. And you see God on a whole nother level. You don't need the world's lens to see, to see our God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Church, we're going to go back into worship. But I love these two Beatitudes. I love all the Beatitudes because we can't do them in our strength. We can only do it in our surrender to Him. But that mercy... I want to be known as a church that mercifully communicates the goodness of God in action. First starts with us. Forgiveness is the attitude. Helpfulness is the action. I want to be a church that's undivided, united under the banner of Christ. One that doesn't turn to the world for the answers, but constantly knows He is the answer to every equation. I know we laugh about this, but you got a problem. Your problem plus you equals Jesus. And Jesus equals the solution to your problem. He is all we need. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who are found in Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who have a heart after Jesus. It's very simple. This morning... I don't have something really profound to end on except simply this. What if we did it? What if we did it? Hey, what if we actually did it? What if we, what if we stopped pretending? What if we stopped saying just the right things and actually took time this morning and go, you know what? I'm sick of pretending. I'm sick of this game. I'm sick of trying to have it all together. What if, what if this works and I find utmost bliss? What if this is the supreme blessing? So as we go back into worship, what if we did this? We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.